It is good to be God's people together. Amen? Amen. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Luke there in the New Testament. Toward the end of that book, in chapter 24, this evening we're going to talk about the ways in which Jesus comes alongside us and surprises us, and how together we're surprised. I got to say, as the song just said, and we just sang, are you awake? Are you awake? I think one of the gifts of not being a megachurch, and I love megachurches, and God uses megachurches, but we're allowed this space when we gather to actually tell stories and to stop and pause and wake up and pray and be present to God's presence together. Amen? I am so, so thankful to be a part of a community that wants to recognize God's presence and name it and celebrate it together. Amen? That's what we're going to be talking about here in a moment. And before we do that, because maybe some of you are now noticing my lovely little splint here, I'll just go ahead and get this out of the way because it's going to be less distracting if I just tell you what it is instead of not wearing it, hitting my finger, and being real distracting when I say some words a pastor shouldn't say. (laughs) So Easter Sunday, after celebrating the new creation and the glorious resurrection, I was so amped up, I thought I could still play basketball. And I was wrong. And my brother and my cousin's husbands were wrong as we spent the next week dealing with our personal injuries in our own ways, realizing the hard way that even though we're all in our 30s, uh, we're too old to be running around thinking we can still get some two-on-two happening at the park. So I busted it up pretty good, but God is good, He is raised, and I will be all right, and my pinky in Jesus' name will bend again. Amen? Let's look at Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13 through verse 35. I love, 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 love this story. There is so much to be said about it. I want to just deal with a few things that I think are pertinent in our lives together as God's people the last couple weeks. So now the same day, that would be Easter Sunday, two of them, that is followers of Jesus, We're going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. So he, Jesus, asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still. Stopped dead in their tracks, and their faces were downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet. Powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. Now pause, here's where he really tips his hand 
and goes out on a limb and says, well, actually, he, I think he's more than a prophet. He says here in verse 21, we had hoped that he was the one who is going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all of this took place. And then in addition, some of our women amazed us. This morning they went to the tomb, early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Then he said to them, How foolish you are! How slow to believe all the prophets have spoken! Did not the Messiah, the anointed king, have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Well, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. Verse 30. When he was at the table with them, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem, seven miles back the other direction. And there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say, thanks be to God. I was in North Carolina last weekend, and I was accompanying my grandfather on a kind of a pilgrimage. Not the grandfather, Don, who is a part of our community and sits right there. My other grandfather, who is also named Don, who will be 85 next month, who's still rocking and rolling, hopping a plane and running around the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, before we ventured to his hometown of Salisbury, just north of Charlotte. We were returning to the town that he grew up in. In fact, we returned to the very home that he was born and raised in. It is still there. The roads around it have changed. They've painted it in ugly blue. But y'all, my house in East Dallas doesn't even look the same from six years ago. They've already flipped that thing. But I went and saw the place and pointed to his room where he and his seven siblings were born and raised. We went to see his schools, the old church that was built in the 1800s. We saw cemeteries where my great-grandparents were buried and their home churches. But really, the really special moment, and it was a real surprise to me, was my time with my great aunt, Nancy. Now, Nancy is younger than my grandfather, and they're the last two siblings remaining of the seven. And so before we started running around Salisbury, North Carolina, we went to her house that was literally next door 
to the house that they were born and raised in. And before she lived in that house, she lived one block up. So she never made it very far out of the orbit of that little house on Clumac Road in Salisbury. So we go to her house, and I'm getting reacquainted with her because I hadn't seen her in over 10 years when she came to Dallas. And we're rocking on her front porch, and what you need to know about these two is this. They are characters. Some of you have direct experience with my grandfather as a character. He was a salesman for many years, and he's that kind of salesman that has never met a stranger, and you can't take him anywhere, because you go into the restaurant, and he said, y'all got any food left? Where's breakfast? Hey, all right, how are you? And just like everyone, eyes to him. He's messing with the waitresses. When we go into their favorite breakfast spot, he sits down, and he's super loud. But you got to understand this, too. Great Aunt Nancy ain't no slouch, either. This woman is a firecracker, and you can see how for eight decades, these two were probably a lot of fun to watch. Well, I got a little piece of the puzzle at Marlowe's in Salisbury, North Carolina. When we sit down, and as loud as my grandfather is, my great aunt Nancy is going, excuse me, ma'am, you'll have to forgive him. He's too loud, and he forgot that he's in public. And then she snatches his hat, puts it on her head, and says, I think I look better in this, don't you? And she's just going to town, and I'm sitting there at this busted-up diner eating something called liver mush, which these crazy North Carolinians think is food. They would not tell me what it was, but it's pretty good. And I'm watching this in some ordinary diner with these two, and I've got to tell you, as they're laughing and cutting up, it begins to dawn on me in that moment at that table, they haven't seen each other in years. He's 85, she's about 82, 83. This may be the last time they see each other face to face, this side of kingdom come. It dawned on me that for eight decades, they had enjoyed this kind of sweet relationship. It dawned on me that they're the last of the clan from Clumac Road in that house that we had just seen 30 minutes ago and I would probably never see again. So while they're sitting there laughing and cutting up, I'm sitting there with my little diner cup of coffee, pouring tears into it, trying to smile and pretend like it's allergies. Because I think it dawned on me that even in these ordinary, kind of simple, everyday moments, there can be these special and sacred and profound moments right there in the midst of it. And that got me thinking this week that too many times we don't recognize the good old days until many days later. Too many times we don't recognize the good times, the special, the profound, the sacred, the significant, until much later. And it got me thinking, especially when Amy is telling me last Saturday night of the profound movement of the Spirit of God. And as she's telling me, it is as if the Spirit of God was just really especially present within Kathy. And it's like she embodied and really was truly bearing witness to the hope of the resurrection because she had tasted and seen it. She wasn't just thinking about it in theory. And then she says, and to gather together and to 
pray and to be together. And as she's telling me this, Kathy had responded to a text that said, I just felt like the Holy Spirit was with us. I'm sitting there thinking, this is kind of one of those moments where we need to wake up and pay attention, not then, but now. This is one of those kind of fire in my belly moments that I want to tend to and stoke and fan into flames, not just then, but now. And it got me thinking that surely for God's people together, how would it transform our everyday lives to recognize God's presence in the present? How would it transform your everyday life to try to discipline yourself, to practice recognizing God's presence in the present? Even if you're a Cleopas and his companion, which we don't know, it could have been his wife, could have been a another follower, brother of Jesus. But to try to even pay attention when your face is downcast, you're stopped dead in your tracks, all the story you built your life around is broken and fallen to pieces, and would you let him put it together? And not wait till then, but to try to tend to God's presence in the present right now. Because if Jesus is alive... And death has no mastery over him, and he's present to these followers. Why can't he be present to us? I love what Jean-Pierre de Cassade, who wrote a little book that goes by two titles, but the title of the book I have is The Sacrament of the Present Moment. And I would commend that book to you. You've also heard me talk about Brother Lawrence, The Practice of the Presence of Christ. Another little book that you could look up, that each bear witness to the reality that Jean-Pierre de Cassade writes. Each moment is a revelation of God. Each moment is a revelation of God. If that's true, then I think it bears the question, are we paying attention? And if we're not paying attention and if we're really bad at noticing those spaces in which he's present to us, maybe we need some practice and reminding. So these are three disciplines that I have put a name to that I see in this story that we just read. There are three disciplines to help us pay attention, to recognize God's presence in our present. And I've really tried to orient my life around these, but I tell you, I'm still a beginner So I need reminding tonight, and maybe these will be helpful to you. The first we'll talk about is reflecting. The second is remembering. And then the third is reciting, like Pastor Kathy did tonight, telling stories of God's movement and work in our present tense. So the first discipline is this discipline of reflecting. This is the work of detecting the divine in our experiences, So this has some underlying assumptions, especially if we're to dare to believe that every moment is a revelation of God. Do you actually believe that God is interactive? I've got to tell you that when I was in seminary, some wonderful, well-meaning disciples and master of theology students 
did not believe the Spirit of God could move them in the present tense to do this or that. And they said, because if he was, then if I didn't do it, that would be sin or disobedience. And God gave us the Bible, that's God's word, and who am I to think that God could still talk to me and lead me to do this or that or the other and for me to obey or not obey? And I said, man, what a dead God Do we believe that God is actually dynamic, that he's not some static, immovable being, but he is working in and around and through and under and over every bit of every facet of our life, bending it back to his way, his kingdom, now and then? Do you actually believe that God is involved in our lives? If you can say yes or even want to say yes, would you try to pay attention beneath the surface of what's going on? Because the only life that you have to live, listen to me, is the life that you're living right now. There is no spiritual life. There is just life. And when we talk about that phrase, spiritual life, it's understanding life as motivated and infused and suffused with the very Spirit of God that is still at work. Cleopas and his companion were having what Luke actually calls a strong debate. We read in the English they were talking and reflecting, right? They were actually trying to get their heads around what the heck just happened. They were having a strong debate because they had a whole Sabbath day on Saturday to sit there with the broken pieces of their hopes and dreams and say, well, what do we do now? And as soon as the Sabbath ends, some of the women went to go tend to Jesus' body. They were packing their bags ready to go home because, well, that was fun, but Jesus is done. We oriented our lives around him. He's dead. He's gone. Maybe they stole his body. He was a failure. We thought he was going to redeem us. We thought he was powerful, but he looked to be powerless on the cross, and so let's get out of here. They're having a strong debate Because they do what we do, and that is try to assign meaning to this crazy life that we live. They try to connect the dots of all the shattered hopes and dreams and those moments when we reflect on the stillness and quiet of our own holy Saturdays after the wreckage and brokenness we experience on a Friday, we say, is this really all there is? Is this really the last word? Am I the only one that has come to a place that says, is Jesus and his way and his stuff really actually worth this? What they're doing is what I think we ought to do, even if it seems scary, to hash this out and detect and discuss and try to say, where is God in this? This is a long history of the Bible that does this and attests to this. Y'all remember that huge, crazy book, Job? Job is probably the oldest book of the Bible that we have. Here's the problem with Job. A lot of that text is the account of Job's friends that come and try to attach meaning to Job's sad situation. And here's the problem. Just because it's in the Bible, it is helpful, it is true, But it doesn't mean that what they said is actually how we ought to frame our world and our life. 
It is true, and that is an account within the story and text of Job of an idea of what this looks like and means. Do you understand what I'm saying? It doesn't mean that we can just cherry pick a verse here or there because Job's friends gave some bad advice and attached a lot of wrong meaning to the narrative of Job. What Job didn't see was that God was still working even when it appeared like he had abandoned him. We need to understand that just because we don't recognize God's work and just because you hear this or hear that, you need to remember that just because we don't recognize God's work, that doesn't mean that God is not working. There is always something happening in and around and below the surface, and we need to hash it out together and process this together because I need you to tell me when what I'm saying doesn't look like, sound like, or smell like God's work in and around our everyday lives. So Cleopas and his companion are doing the right thing. They're trying to attach meaning to these broken pieces. And in the middle of this reflecting, who comes and joins them? We know it's Jesus. They don't know it's Jesus. There's this strange, mysterious thing. Because other times... Jesus shows up and they say, oh my gosh, Jesus, how you doing? These guys are kept from recognizing him. You with me? How many of you is that something that resonated when you heard that? That's weird. So maybe God is in this somehow. Maybe Jesus wasn't ready for them to recognize. Or maybe they didn't see Jesus because they weren't looking. Hello? Hello? A lot of times, I need you to hear me reflecting on this or that situation in my life because I need you to say, dude, hello, look at how God is in this. Because sometimes I don't see God because I'm not looking. Because surely God is not here or there or alongside me in this. I think sometimes when we stop dead in our tracks like Cleopas and his friend, trying to question and wonder what's going on, it's not because God is not present, it's because we are not present. Have y'all gotten those fancy wedding invitations that says, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so request the honor of your presence? Do y'all have that? Lynette's shaking her head. She's going, y'all come to my wedding. That's how we do it down here. (laughs) I laugh at that because I think, man, every morning we have this invitation where God requests the honor of our presence while you're spending so much time looking backwards to what happened then or looking forwards to what might happen then. And he says, the only moment you have is this one, and I'm requesting the honor of your presence with me in this. Just because we don't recognize God's work does not mean God's not working. The discipline of reflection is trying to 
look beneath, beyond, around, and dust for the fingerprints of God that's at work. And a lot of times we've got to process that together. So Jesus, but they don't know it's Jesus, comes up and says, what are y'all talking about? And Cleopas goes, for real, dude, are you serious? Were you not here? It's like being at the Super Bowl city and saying, oh, there's a game today? I saw from the NFL draft last week in Nashville, they shut down the whole downtown, and there's 20, 30, 40 thousands of people in the streets And I heard that one of the stories came out that because Nashville or Nash Vegas that they kept calling it, which made me crazy, but they said here in Nash Vegas, it's a bachelorette party destination. So there's like dozens of bachelorette parties happening with the sash and they walk out and they see people in Rams gear and they're like, what is this thing happening? It's kind of like that. Being in Nashville and saying, I'm just trying to have a bachelorette party. What are you hundred thousand people doing? So he stops dead in our tracks, and I love this irony, because he goes, are you the only one who doesn't know? And Luke is screaming at us to say, actually, he's the only one that does know right now. In Luke's account, the first people that Jesus wants to go and talk to are these sassy walkers out of there, and then what he does is lays out before Jesus all the ways that Jesus disappointed him. And Jesus smote him. Oh, no? Jesus listens and continues to walk with him. These two were around for the report that morning to hear this amazing thing and this vision, but they still didn't stick around to see for themselves because you know what? I had this figured out. I had this narrative. Thank you very much. It was a nice run. We'll see you guys Like me, add me on Facebook, we'll talk later, but we're going back to Emmaus. Here's what I love, love, love. They are literally walking away from their faith, and Jesus is still walking with them. They are literally straying from the flock of the good shepherd And Jesus leaves the 99 to literally go find the two that are wandering. Didn't Jesus have better things to do? He spends most of the day with two people who had given up on him because Jesus refuses to give up on them. And it gives me great comfort and peace to know That as much as I love the people who are drifting and straying and wandering, Jesus loves them and longs for them and is seeking them even more. So I might need to join with them and reflect on the ways that God is still bending and moving and inviting them into life and into steps back with him, even if it's not my timeline. I don't know where I heard this. Y'all might help me. It sounds like something... Some of our friends that have spoken here or maybe like an Alan Fadling. I don't know if it's something I read or heard, but I love this question. How fast is God's speed? That phrase, God's speed, I had to look up because I'm like, what is that anyway? God's speed is a way of saying like, may God bless your journey. I thought it was legit like God's speed is super fast. So God's speed, y'all get to the moon real quick. No, evidently, God's speed is like blessing on your journey. But I wanted to separate that and think, how fast does God move? And I heard someone say this, about three miles per hour. 
Because that's the average speed a person walks. I think sometimes the Spirit of God gives us wisdom to run when it's time to run and walk when it's time to walk and to sit when it's time to sit. We can see this in places like Psalm 23, but I love, 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 love the fact that these two people in the fog of despair and misunderstanding, we thought he was this, we thought he would do that, he walks with them as the fog gradually lifts and he takes his time. In the middle of this fog, trying to make sense of it, Jesus is gradually walking and working And I think that it's important for us to walk with one another, with Jesus in our midst, to listen in Christ, to hear the ways in which God is at work that they may not perceive, and to help join them in their journey. Not rush them forward and not drag them backward, but to meet people where they are, to pay attention and then move where God wants them to be. Could you do that as a community together? Could you do that when people come to your house for dinner? And would you begin to recognize Jesus in the breaking of bread and processing and reflecting? Could we tell the stories of God's faithfulness together so that we might practice what it might look like in the here and now? Because you've reflected, you've digested, and you've processed. And I think the other thing is to remember. This is our second discipline. Do a Bible search this week on like Bible Gateway or whatever app. You can pull out your version app if you're bored and need a break from me right now. And type in the word remember and see how many hundreds of commands you find in the Old and New Testament of God saying remember. And God's leaders saying remember. Why? Because we are forgetful. And I even added, or sometimes you got to record it. I have a bullet journal where my whole life lives. It's not my phone. i got to write it down because it helps me remember. Remembering and recording, writing, storytelling, figure it out. Remembering God's movement in the past is vital to trusting God's movement in the present. Oh, man, I'm never going to get out of this. Somebody says, wait, 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 remember, remember? Remember when you said that a year ago? Oh, no, 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 oh, no, no, no. As we prayed for Kathy last Saturday... Amanda's story, Sherry's story, Sid's story, Angela's story, her story, his story. It doesn't mean that he might do it exactly the same way, but can we still ask him? Prayer is asking God to move and trusting that he loves us no matter what. But remembering God's movement in the past is vital to trusting God's movement in the present. I love how when Amy was telling me about last Saturday and then Kathy telling her story today, Amy rehearsed a really hard week, which always tends to happen when I'm away, which I'm sorry. That's just how it tends to go. She was having a really difficult week and she just started rehearsing day by day in the midst of pain, in the midst of difficulty. She was so impressed with the withness of God with us. Even when I wasn't there, she was able to trace daily how God was present with her. I'm not saying that every week is like that, but I'm hearing it and I'm saying, I need to write this down. I need to remember the withness of God with us so that maybe next time 
I'll pay attention and be present in the present. Because there may be even more amazing things that God has for us right then and now. So Jesus is walking alongside them and finally he hears this and he says, okay, their story, their narrative needs a tune-up. So what he does is he rebukes them and he says, man, how slow are you going? Because sometimes even at a walking pace, we try to sit down and he says, no, 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 you got to keep moving. Sometimes our stories need a major overhaul. So he finally says, enough is enough. Wake up. And he snaps them out of the autopilot and the fog of doubt. And sometimes you just need to reflect and remember and hold it before Jesus and others so that he can say, nope, wrong, stop it. Because he needs to teach us and show us and connect the dots when we start to believe wrongly about who he is and how he works. Sometimes it's easier to tell what's not God than what is God. Does that make sense to you? That's something I'm just kind of processing. Sometimes when you hear something or say something, you can't quite say, uh, but it's just something that doesn't sit right with you where you say, I don't know about that. That's why I think we can only make sense of God and his word through Jesus, the word made flesh. In our church, we are an Anabaptist-flavored church. That's a weird way of saying we're not a denominational church. We're connected to the Ecclesia network. That's a relational network. But we're not part of some formal denomination like Catholic or Orthodox or Baptist or Methodist. But we do have a flavor and an influence of some of the ways we think and preach and pray and live. And those are our Anabaptist core convictions. The first two, they're on our website. The first two of seven look like this. The first is we are all about Jesus. Jesus is our example, teacher, friend, redeemer, and Lord. He is the source of our life. He is the central reference point for our faith and lifestyle. Pause. This is really weird for a lot of our friends and brothers that are Christians in this part of the world. Because they say, no, 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 the Bible. And we say, yes, praise God. His word is true. It's infallible. It's profitable. It instructs us. But I believe the inerrant word of God is the word of God, Jesus, made flesh. Because when you go back to Leviticus and some of these laws, Jesus himself says, you've heard it said, but now I say to you. You've heard it said this good and profitable thing then. I'm moving us forward into now. We are Christians, not Biblians. Are you with me? Hold on. I preach from this book and read from this book every week and every day. I am saying the Bible rightly read is a Bible that points to the fulfillment of Jesus, which is why Jesus takes Cleopas and his brother aside and say, look, man, all of Moses, which is the first five books, and all of the prophets, which is the rest of the books, are pointing to me. That sounds weird that he would do that. No, no, no. He said that to the people that taught the book, that memorized the book. He said to the Jewish leaders... You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. I say to you, the scriptures are pointing to me. 
and we wonder why they wanted to kill Jesus. Could we dare believe that Jesus came as the fulfillment of all God wanted to do and had done for the centuries from Adam and Eve to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and all down through. It's all rushing forward into the climax of Jesus and the cross and the risen tomb. And he shows these two people, your story needs a revamp. I'm the center point. And the degree to which you drift away from me is the degree to which you need to recalibrate because in me there's life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So of course, Jesus is the central reference point for our faith and lifestyle, our understanding of church, and our engagement with society. We want to be like Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to hang out with the people that Jesus would hang out with. So we're committed to follow Jesus and worship him. Now, How do we approach the book that bears witness to Jesus? Well, that's our second core conviction. It says we're Jesus-centered Bible readers here at the Neighborhood Church. And the Anabaptist Network, which is based in the UK, put these words that we lovingly borrowed. And they write, Jesus is the focal point of God's revelation. We are committed to a Jesus-centered approach to the Bible and to the community of faith as the primary context in which we read the Bible and discern and apply its implications for discipleship. I believe the Spirit of God is present with us. He's moving us. He's calling us to the particularities of this place in this time, and we're to follow Jesus together, to pay attention and respond appropriately, because I believe that just like Cleopas and his friend, Jesus is walking with us. And so we read the Old Testament pointing forward to Jesus, And we read the New Testament reflecting back on the life of Jesus. And we try to live today with Jesus at the center. And we've got to remember that he is still with us. So Jesus, after his Bible study lesson, he's taught them, he's walked with them, and now he's going to eat with them. This is another sermon, but I'm tempted to just say this and leave this in the room. The first meal recorded in the Bible at creation is a woman taking the fruit, eating, and a man taking it and eating. And it was a meal that brought death. In Luke's account, the first meal the risen Christ ate was a meal of new creation showing them he's stronger than death. That's another sermon for next time I do this and y'all forgotten about this one. (laughs) But isn't it fascinating that it is only when he takes the bread, he blesses it and breaks it, that the light bulb goes off. There is something about our God revealed to us in Jesus where Good Friday and Easter make sense in the context of the body and the blood for you from God. And then he's gone. I think it's actually when Jesus disappears that they finally see him. Theologian Paul Tillich writes, God is the God who appears from behind the God who has disappeared. How many of you have had a conversion experience where you thought you had God figured out and he says, no, actually, I'm so much bigger 
and better and more loving than you could have even imagined. I love what Father Gregory Boyle writes. He says, God, I guess, is more expansive than every image we think rhymes with God. How much greater is the God we have than the one we think we have? I think it's at that moment that they begin to reflect and remember the last several hours and they say, did you feel it too? Weren't our hearts burning within us when he was walking with us and talking with us and showing us how much greater the God we have is than the one we thought we have who was dead on the cross and robbed from a grave? Turns out he is alive and we've got to go tell the rest we have seen Jesus. So they go and they recite all they had seen and felt. And I think that storytelling or reciting our final discipline as we close is actually a spiritual discipline. I think what Kathy did a moment ago is a spiritual discipline. And what was funny is she was talking about spiritual disciplines in her story. Because what it's doing is it's bearing witness to the story that God is writing when we thought we had our own story figured out. And it causes us to recognize and to dust for God's fingerprints with others so that when she tells you this, you might begin to connect a dot and say, oh, that might be like what I just experienced a month ago. Reflecting helps us to process Remembering helps correct us and make sense in the light of Jesus what is happening in our everyday lives. And then I think reciting these stories helps embody it and give people an imagination that begins to burn inside them that says maybe God actually is walking with us after all. So would we as God's people pay attention to the burning within our hearts while it's burning and cultivate it, and fan the flame, and learn to see it, and learn to hear it, and learn to move and act on it, so that we might spread this fire and flame in our own community, our own families, and in our own world, whether it's at the dinner table, that we might bear witness to the one who has broken, and bled, and also reconciled the world, and that this God is so much better and bigger than we could have ever thought. And he's still walking with us. How would it transform your everyday life to recognize God's presence in our present? Let's pray. Father, it is good to be with you. Some of us want to believe we're with you. Some of us are struggling to believe you might be. We pray that perhaps in our own breaking of the bread in a few moments, they would begin to see glimpses and glimmers of you who have been there all along. Would you show yourself for who you truly are? Not exacting or demanding, but forgiving and inviting to the hard and sacrificial work of denying ourselves, taking up our crosses and following you, but finding not death and pain, but new life and new hope 
even in those spaces and places where it's hard, you who are near to the brokenhearted, you who go after the lost and wandering sheep, would you show us more and more who you really are? So Lord, we pray that you would begin that work, you would continue that work even now as we respond in the table and in worship. We pray this in your strong name, Jesus, who goes with us. Amen. We have all eaten together with a risen Christ. Go out then as witnesses of these things. Attend to your heart. Worship with integrity. Love with sincerity. Trust in the Lord. Proclaim forgiveness and healing in his name to all. May Jesus, who looks upon you with deepest love, bless your eyes and wind your glaze as he walks alongside you in your journey. And may God raise you from death to life, to life, from brokenness to perfect health. May Christ Jesus cast out your fears and doubts and may the Holy Spirit give your heart joy, even as the bread and the wine gives your body life. We go in peace to love and serve the Lord in the name of Christ.